Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to author Christopher Moore. How are you doing, sir? I'm well, thanks for asking. Um, I've been pestering you for probably about a year since I started getting this going because you've been one of the people that I really want to talk to. I, I absolutely love your writing. Um, Thanks. A little bit about you. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Ohio, um, sort of the north, let me see, eastern part of it, so industrial, you know, Rust Belt, Ohio, in a factory town. And then I went to California when I was like 19 to go to school, and I stayed. And uh, I've been living in northern California in different places, you know, pretty much all my adult life. So um, I don't know what else you want to know. <laughs> Ask specifically. <laughs> um, what uh, were there any people that inspired or influenced you as a kid? Uh, as a writer, or just uh, you know, in as people? Um, Both. <laughs> uh, well, um, I thought Robin Hood was really cool when I was little, <laughs> and uh, for a while, when I was about seven, I wanted to be in the Navy because I thought the hats and bell bottoms were cool. <laughs> and uh, no, I I, uh, I think I, I first dis- I first became aware of the writer as a person behind the story in about uh, fifth grade. So what are you, eleven then? Um, reading Ray Bradbury stories and the uh, the Illustrated Man and ours for Rocket Nessus for Space and. I sort of, uh, I had always read a lot as a kid, and I, I was at that point going through Jules Verne books, which took me forever to read because they were big and thick. Reading Ray Bradbury's short stories, I, I think I got my head around the fact that, oh, this person's sort of guiding me through this. They're manipulating me one way or another, and I became aware of, uh, of the writer as the author as a person who sort of manipulated sort of a, a negative sounding word, but, but sort of guides you through a story. And I think, uh, so certainly Ray Bradbury would have been an inspiration for, for me. And then all of those, uh, uh, early, 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 like HG Wells and Jules Verne, science fiction writers, fantasy writers, um, influenced me. And then gradually that, that would, uh, sort of narrow down to a bunch of horror short story writers when I was in, by the time I was in high school that I was reading. Um, that, you know, I thought that's what I wanted to do actually for, for quite a while was to be a horror story writer and, um, specifically, you know, Richard Matheson, Robert Block, um, you know, if, if these names don't sound immediately, they don't immediately leap to mind. A lot of their stories were adapted for Twilight Zone. Richard Matheson wrote, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man and he wrote, um, the Last Man on Earth, or I, I forget what that was called, but anyway, it's been made in movies to a million to- a million times, including with uh, Oh, I Am Legend, I Am Legend. Got it. So, um, those guys that are were really masters of of the horror story uh, genre were were my inspiration, you know, early on, um, and then I branched out when you know I got into my twenties and so forth. You, um, I, from the research I was doing, it you cited um, Tom Robbins and. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut as some of your, I guess, people that you kind of looked in, up to as, as a writer. Um, yeah, yeah. What's it like to be compared to them? Uh, uh, there's a quote that says, Christopher Moore is rapidly becoming the cult author of today, filling the past uh, post-last held by Vonnegut. 
And then the other one says you're the thinking man's Dave Barry or the impatient man, Tom Robbins. What's it like being compared to oh, the people that you kind of aspired to be like? That's great. I mean, yeah, I, I, like I, that couldn't be better company. And, <laughs> and those guys, certainly as I, uh, as I really sort of set my inspiration into becoming a professional writer, which would have been my, my mid, early to mid-20s, um, those guys were enormously uh, influential on me because they were doing what I wanted to do. They were writing funny stories. And, you know, and, and saying things at the same time and, you know, keeping a lot of balls in the air. But um, and they opened the door for me. I know that for a fact, um, because the, you know, I got the person that eventually became my editor for my first book said that at the editorial meeting where a person who's, a, you know, gotten a look at a book, you know, pitches it to everybody else in the publisher. They said at the end of the meeting or the end of the presentation of my book, they said, well, Tom Robbins does weird stuff like that, and he's successful, so why not? So it was basically, if there hadn't been a Tom Robbins and probably a Vonnegut, there wouldn't have been a Christopher Moore, just because, you know, they don't like doing anything they haven't seen before. And uh, as long as they could they could hammer my stuff into a mold that, you know, fit through an oblong hole the size of Tom Robbins, I guess it was fine. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'd, I'd take that comparison all day long. Um before we get too much into the stories you've written, um, you like me have held a, a number of positions, <laughs> uh, various jobs. What kind of DJ were you? Radio DJ, party DJ, a little both? Yeah, I was radio. I okay. was radio. We did. Um, we had um, one of the last commercial progressive rock stations in the country that wasn't programmed. I think we may have been like one of four that wasn't programmed. And um, I think it was, wasn't programmed because they couldn't afford the technology to program it. <laughs> um, and uh, it was, and when I first started, it was an all volunteer um, crew. And it was a, a station called KOTR, KOTR on the central coast of California. And uh, pretty much the DJs came in and did their, their, uh, sets and everybody sort of affected a personality you know there'd be a guy that was a deadhead and he played nothing but the dead for four hours and <laughs> another guy who was it was really miserable he was a moody blues guy um and you know and then of course the the dylan the dylan you know my my thing was when i do requests i'd say okay the the rely the uh request lines are open but just remember the three d's no dylan doors are dead um <laughs> and that was basically as a reaction to all these other guys I was working with who were, who were just completely locked into that, those particular genres of music. But, um, it was, I, I was a drive time DJ my, my online, uh, or not online, my on air handle was AC nightshade. Um, because I had had a, a local, um, minister accuse me of being the antichrist when he implied, <laughs> when he, um, when he, uh, complained to the FCC about something I said on the air. I don't remember what it was. And, um, and so I just took the initials AC. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was, an, I had started out as, as many of us did as an overnight DJ, you know, where, you know, they could, anybody that could come in at midnight and, and play records until six or eight in the morning, they, you know, they'd let you, if you could work a turntable, they'd let you. Um, and so I had, sort of developed my personality in, in the middle of the night. And then when they put me on like daytime drive time, I was like, how am I going to do this? So I would always sort of, my handle was the AC nightshade working with piped in darkness. <laughs> and, um, 
and it was just sort of this morose nihilistic uh, DJ that was playing. I, I liked to play like uh, really happy sounding songs with really depressing lyrics. So obviously I, <laughs> I played a lot of Morrissey, but I also played, uh, you know, in the Smiths, but I, you know, I played fine young cannibals and general public, a lot of ska stuff and uh, the, the, prog rock that was coming out at the time which would have been U2 the Joshua Tree and uh, um, trying to think what else was was happening Camber Van Beethoven and that kind of stuff um, as well as classic rock so that's what I did I did that for like three years and um, it was great fun I had an encyclopedic knowledge of music from 1980 about 1986 to about 1989 you couldn't stop <laughs> me on anything um, but that was yeah, it was a good it was a good deal. It didn't it paid like six bucks an hour when they started paying us. Nice, <laughs> um, you know. So, but I, I also wrote yeah, I also wrote ads there. Okay. Um, and and that was, it was so that may have been my first paid writing job to be honest with you. Um, I, I can only I'm imagine. Right. Sorry, I can only imagine <laughs> the, the the ads and how they sounded given given your writing style. <laughs> Well, you know, what I, I started doing was uh, taking, you know, they, they had had the same people writing, the same like two people writing their ads, and they had the salespeople writing their ads. And most of, you know, because it being the Central Coast of California, which is not a, you know, the businesses are all small. There's no big businesses on the Central Coast of California unless they're the, the uh, you know, branch of, you know, Midas Muffler or something like that. So, you know, and our salespeople couldn't get to them. So, uh you know, it was all restaurants and hardware stores and Christmas tree lots. And so they almost had this boilerplate of like every restaurant was uh, casual elegance and every, you know. Uh, and so I would just use the cliches from one one business like restaurants and I'd wrote a, write a whole hardware store ad with them. You know, he's <laughs> talking about, you know, strolling through the bucolic casual elegance of the aisles of bolts and nuts <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And I had a great time with it. And the sponsors didn't have a problem with it at all because people would come in and say, I heard your ad. Are you nuts? You know, but you know, when you get any response to ads, it's, it's good, I guess. So, so uh, say, I did okay at it. Any publicity is good publicity, I guess, for the most part. I guess. I mean, they would be, I would get in trouble sometimes, um, when I was on the air as a DJ and, and somebody else's ad would play and there would be something really stupid in the ad and then I would make fun of it. And I just never quite learned that there was a great big, you can make fun of anything, but not the sponsors. And I would, I just couldn't help myself. So I would get fired forever. The, the, uh, the guy that ran the station was just apoplectic about anything. He just went out. He just had this incredible screaming enraged vein on his forehead, bulging temper, and he would fire me forever. And, you know, in those words, you know, you're fired forever. And then the next day he would call and he'd say, you got to cover your shift today. And I was like, I'm fired forever. And he goes, forever is not as long around here as it, as it is everywhere else. <laughs> Short term forevers. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was, a, it was a good job. It was fun. It was, a, I mean, it wasn't a good job money wise, but it was a great to have that experience to be able to do it. You, um, Apparently, you're an avid scuba diver. Is that correct? I yeah yeah I I I've, I have dived a lot, but not recently. Yeah. Um, any of your any place that's a particular favorite of yours? You know, you, you sort of measure the what are the what are the best stories and and you know for kind of weirdness and then what was the best under underwater experience and probably 
um, the best underwater experiences was was diving a fairly deep reef, and by that I mean you know like seventy feet, which is deep for a colorful reef because sunlight has to get to it in uh, Sabu Sabu, uh, Fiji, um, which is an island that's I think partially owned by one of the Cousteaus, and and it was amazing diving. Um, but uh, but as far as just Sure weirdness. I I dove Truck Lagoon, which has 61 sunken um, Japanese ships in it. It's sort of their Pearl Harbor, although most of these ships were merchant, uh, you know, like supply ships and so forth. Where, where's that at? And, uh, that uh, is in Micronesia. The island of Truck is is uh, I think it's its own atoll. Got it. But um, it's sort of in the middle of Micronesia, which is like a a big utility belt across the the. Uh, southern part of the equator um, in the Pacific, and it stretches from, you know, Guam, which everybody knows of, all the way to the other side, which is a Kwajalein, which was a missile base for the Americans, and almost to Hawaii. Got it's, it. It's a massive, um, a massive archipelago of thousands of islands, and uh, there's some really amazing diving in a lot of them, and that's how I ended up going there. Um, I went to Truck to research a book that wasn't about anything that was going on on Truck, but... I thought, okay, this is work, so I can say this is work, and, and my Ohio work ethic will be satisfied, and if <laughs> I make any money, I can take it off my taxes, and I'll get to scuba dive in Truck Lagoon. So that was uh, that was kind of how that started, and it ended up being, uh, some of those experiences ended up in my book, Island of the Sequin Love Known. Got it. I was wondering which book that came into. I've That sounds like an amazing place to, to dive. I have minimal diving experience, um, partially because my experience is usually murky water uh, as a rescue diver. And the only two nice places that I've dove were the Bahamas and Aruba. And I ended up rupturing mm-hmm. my eardrum in the Bahamas. Didn't realize it at the time. I was trying to figure out why things were so un- unsteady underwater. And then oh, I no. later found out it was because I ruptured my eardrum somehow. Did you come up with your mask full of blood or blood coming out of your ear or anything like that? No, I had a problem equalizing going down, and I kind of went down a little bit, couldn't uh, equalize, so I came up, finally got my, you know, the pop that I needed and went back down and was fine until I got to the bottom and realized that things felt weird. It's the only way I can describe it. Came back up, threw up as soon as I hit the surface, didn't think much of it. Oh, no. And... We got back on a cruise ship, and it felt like my ear was clogged. Didn't have any pain or anything. It was it was really a weird thing. I We got back from the cruise a few days later, and I'm like, let me go have my ear checked. And it was perforated. So, yeah, fun times for me. <laughs> does that does that grow back? I mean, can, do, you, do you fix it? Do they fix it? What, what goes on with it? That? Was, it was described to me as a pinhole that would heal itself, and I don't have any deficient hearing. Okay. Um, cool. My wife might say the otherwise, but... Uh, according to the doctors, I don't have any deficiencies in hearing. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I had a I had a reverse block. I think right after I got certified, I got certified in Hawaii because a writer named Tim Cahill, who was one of the principal writers for Outside Magazine, and I met with him early in my career, and he said, if you're going to get certified, go to the tropics and do it in five days. Don't do it in like a gravel pit in Minnesota or something like that. <laughs> so I I took his his word and I got certified in like I think six days in in Maui. But you're doing a lot of diving oh, every yeah. day, and then at the end, you know, you go, "I got to go use my new found car," and uh, it it was essentially 
you know, after you do all those emergency ascents and stuff to get certified, it was a, uh, the equivalent of bounce diving. And I got a reverse block after going down deep into a, into like an underground, underground, underwater grotto, excuse me, off Lanai. And I couldn't, you know, if you can't equalize going down, you just stop going down. Yeah. But if, if you can't equalize when you're coming back up, <laughs> You can't stop going up, yeah, because that's where that's where we keep our air, right? Yeah, and um, and so I came up and there was blood in my mask and oh it was boy. all it was just like having the worst sinus headache you can possibly imagine. And so, uh, so that was that was fun. That was my <laughs> my only that I can think of dive injury and and or close call or anything of that nature. Yeah, I did my checkout dives at a place called Dutch Springs in Pennsylvania, which is a old flooded quarry. And we had some good depths on there, and it's, it's a great place to, to really learn how to dive properly with you know, navigating through. You know, they have a Sikorsky that they sunk. Um, there's an airplane that sits down about 90 feet. My favorite thing about diving in general is finding that thermocline and just kind of sitting there for a few minutes, appreciating how your legs are cold and your upper body's nice and warm. <laughs> but, uh yeah. One of the genres that you you write has been described as absurdist. I, I I didn't realize that that was a genre, and I thought it was kind of comical when I came across that. What's what's your take on on that? I I don't know. I mean, I never. If there was anything I ever tried to do, it was to skate the genres. You know, <laughs> I write funny horror stories, and then I write funny thrillers, and you know, funny murder mysteries and stuff like that. So. Um, I, I, I never thought about that. And people started calling it absurdist. I, I get, you know, what fiction isn't absurd? You know, what imaginative fiction isn't absurd? Of course, you know. So I don't take it as an offense. I don't resist it. It's, you know, okay, fine, I'll take it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the people I learned were absurdist were guys like uh, um, um, Rabelais and... Uh, and the, the French guy who wrote Ubu Roy, who, who uh, it, it'll, it'll lose me right now, but he was contemporary with the Dadaists. And, I mean, his shit was just, um, or, you know, Ionesco, you know, plays like the rhinoceros and stuff like that. That's what I was taught was absurdist, and I don't think my son is like that. But I, I get it. I think people go, well, this is absurd. There's a, you know, sea monster that turned into a house trailer. And I'm like, yes, okay, that is absurd. Um, so, so it just... Uh, I've never, I, I've never aspired nor cared about fitting into any sort of genre. If if it seems comfortable, you know, I'm fine. It's like getting a sweater at Goodwill, you know, for <laughs> a dime. You know, it's like okay, this is a great deal. It keeps me warm. You're, uh, you definitely seem to have like your own style. Where do you, I guess, how do you do your research and where do you get your ideas from for the varying? Uh, storylines that you've come up with, whether it be Dirty Jobs or my personal favorite pocket? Um, well, I, obviously from different places. I mean, um, you, you just sort of consume a lot of different media, you know, stories, movies, plays, news, whatever. And, and, um, you know, having done this now for, I think I'm on book 19 now, and having done this now for going on 35 years uh, professionally, uh, 31 years professionally, I guess, uh, I 
you're always looking for that. You're always looking for ideas. It's not, and it's, it's very seldom, you know, like a bolt of lightning that you go, Oh, I was suddenly inspired. Um, I, I, I think my book, soccer blue, which is about, um, artists, it's about the color blue. Essentially. I don't know where that idea came from. It just feels like it occurred to me. I should write a novel about the color blue. <laughs> and then I started thinking, and then after you get a notion like that, which it's not really even an idea yet, let's call it a notion, then you start, it becomes a problem-solving exercise. And you go, how would I go about writing a book about the color blue, a novel about the color blue? And and my book becomes sort of a biography of all these different painters um, in Paris in you know, the 1860s to 1890s. And they become characters in the book. And, you know, the book opens with the murder of Vincent van Gogh. And then gradually his friends trying to solve the murder who are, you know, most of the characters are real people. I, uh, sort of the main character is a guy I invented because I needed somebody to be the focus of the story that wasn't tied to history. So I could just make him do anything I wanted to. Um, but, but ideas just come from those kind of things. And the research... Once you, once I decide that I'm going to do a book about something, then the research fills in. Uh, strangely enough, a lot of times the comedy, because I'll just be going through. I'm I'm working on a book and that takes place in uh, Vienna in 1911 now, and the, there's a lot of luminaries in Vienna in 1911. It's one of the reasons that I'm writing the book. But I was reading about Freud the other day, and I found out that Freud, as a child, uh, was afraid of trains. And he sort of carried that fear of trains into his adulthood. I'm going, how cool is that? What a great <laughs> thing to do with comedy is that Freud is afraid of trains. The guy who sort of is the personification of the train and tunnel metaphor for right. sex is was afraid of trains. So I'm going to use that. I don't know how I'm going to use that, but I'm going to use that. And that's that's how you develop it develops from I'm going to do a book that you know is set in 1911 um, or you know early 20th century Vienna to you know, you get these cool things that you find out about these people and you go down these rat holes and sometimes you get comedy and sometimes you just get, this is a cool thing I can put in a book and, and you just tie it together with a story. Um, so, you know, and some ideas are, are just, I need a book. I need to write a book. It needs to be set here. I don't have time or money to go anywhere to research it. So it's going to be set in, you know, my hometown. And um, I, I remember there was a point where, uh, when you're when you're an author and you're not writing a book at currently, but you go out to lunch a lot, you know, and sort of interface with your friends you haven't seen. And I was having lunch with you know various friends every day, and you know they would be putting their pill by their their glass, and they would take their pill, and and I realized, um, and nobody was shy about it, you know, but everybody I knew was taking antidepressants, and then, you know, sort of following this over about the next year sequentially my friends were melting down. You get these emergency calls. My life is shit. I'm selling everything. I'm going to move to, you know, Texas or some other <laughs> God awful place. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm so, you know, as much up, up to suicidal or I'm, you know, going to get divorced or whatever. And, and people would just have meltdowns. And I learned to ask, are you taking your meds? And then they go, no, I stopped. I don't need them. And I was like, <laughs> well, no, you're having a crisis. And I'm, Strangely enough, I had a, a guy that went to the gym was the diagnostician, the psychiatrist for Atascadero State Hospital, which is where they put the really freaky baby killers and shit like that. Got it. And um, 
and I asked him, I said, is there, you know, is there some sort of bounce back effect going off of antidepressants? He goes, oh, absolutely. You can't just go off of antidepressants. You have to wean yourself off of them, right. you know, over sometimes a period of months. Otherwise, you, whatever it was that sent you to antidepressants, you're going to have this rubber band effect and it's going to be a, a million times worse. Plus, you, you'll have this incredible increase in libido. And he said, that's how we treat people who are diagnosed nymphomaniac. We give them very high doses of Prozac because it, it flattens your libido. And so I thought, what a great idea for a book. You know, my, my first thought was, I just wish all my friends would decide to have their freak out at the same time so I could just set that month aside to go <laughs> you know, put out psychological fires. But then I thought, well, what if you had a whole town, and the little town I lived in that would have been possible, where everyone went off their antidepressants at the same time? And so you're suddenly you've got a small town filled with horny, depressed people. And so I wrote the book, The Less Lizard of Melancholy Cove, where the sort of the action of that sets all that that going is uh, is the fact that a woman kills herself and the psych, the only psychiatrist in town has just been running a revolving door of not really giving anybody therapy just but just um, prescribing antidepressants. And she, out of guilt, you know, she's got something on the only pharmacist in town that says, you've got to start giving them placebos. We can't do it. So uh, unbeknownst to the population, everybody is having this bounce back effect. And it, it, consequently, it consequently attracts uh, ancient sea monster who had evolved to, to uh feed on depressed mammals but that's just he was you know that's that's just a coincidence because he was already awakened from the sea bottom by a leak at a nuclear power plant but <laughs> that's the answer of so where do you get your ideas um you get them you know at lunch and somebody puts a pill by their glass and you go what's that and they go that's my prozac you know that's where you get your ideas that's one of the books that i, I need to get to that the first book i read of yours was a dirty job and mm -hmm absolutely loved it and as i'm reading a couple more of your books i noticed that you have seem to have a thing for squirrels are they like your spirit animal <laughs> the last 10 years i've been writing um a lot i have a place in a redwood forest in um, up on the russian river north of san francisco about an hour and a half and so when i'm up there writing you know and i'm on the third floor of, of this building with in the middle in the midst of this uh, redwood forest my company is squirrels so that's maybe they're sort of like <laughs> the only people i have to talk to and so they're in of mind um and uh you know there's a, there's a, a sort of a feedback to because i'm in contact with my readers a lot on social media and you know you can make up squirrel stuff and and people it'll crack people up and um, but you're right. I did write my last book was called Shakespeare for Squirrels. So yeah, uh, guilty as charged there. <laughs> um, I just decided to you know go with it. It seemed like squirrels wanted to be in a book. I might as well give them one. So I I, um, I became friends with a squirrel uh, at a job that I had. It would come to the front door expecting peanuts or whatever, and I found a bag and would start feeding it, and he would literally come up and take them out of my hand and run away and. I, I I love squirrels, which is one of the reasons why I love the fact that they're kind of prominent periodically in your books. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I had similar experiences. I, a house I used to have in the, in a little town I lived in, Central California, um, Central Coast, 
we had a skylight over the bed and I would feed squirrels. I think at that point I was giving them like corn on the, those dried corn on the cob feed corn and we'd put them out on the deck and I, the hardware store, wherever we bought them ran out. And so like six in the morning, there's a squirrel up by the skylight barking at us as we're sleeping. And I'm, I'm, I don't get up at six and I look up and it's like, and it's like, oh, okay. I evidently we need to give something to the squirrel, or he's going to come and wake us up, you know. So, so uh, yeah. I mean, I you do project personalities on them, but they also have personalities, you know. And and there's, you know, they don't, they kind of don't care about you unless you have food. But you have food, you know. So you're, you know, you're their biggest strangest friend. <laughs> Speaking of of big strange friends, do you have a a favorite character of yours that you've written so far? Um, gosh, I, I like a lot of them. Um, I, I think I like writing pocket, my, my jester, <laughs> um, because he's so clever and so funny and so irreverent and, and brave essentially. Cause he's tiny and he <laughs> has no problem getting in anybody's face. Um, but but I I, it'd be, I I sort of, you know, this is a long, I have a long relationship with a lot of these characters. So I, I, I have an affection for a lot of them, but I, I, I'm more prone when asked that question to say, what's your favorite? So what's your favorite? Mine is Pocket. There's, yeah. there's remnants of him that remind me of a childhood friend of mine, a guy I'm still friends with, um, with the smart-ass attitude and the very, very quick-witted um, he's just hysterical and he's given me one of my favorite words that's ever come out of my mouth, which is fuck stockings. <laughs> um, well, cool. That, that was a, that was an adaptation. I'll, I'll tell you the etymology of fuck stockings. Um, I was writing a book called you suck, which was my second vampire book. And I wanted to do something different than the first one. The first one was basically the story of a, of a woman, um, in San Francisco, uh, in her mid twenties, who is working as a, as a secretary, an executive assistant. And she, uh, gets turned into a vampire, doesn't get the instruction book. So that was the tagline. <laughs> like, you know, she didn't have Dr. Dr. Van Helsing standing there saying, this is how you do all this. And this is how it works. She just woke up under a dumpster in the financial district. So in the second book, I wanted to do something different. And I, I wanted to have, uh, like a, a goth girl character. And I've been in doing research. I've been writing the buses in San Francisco and, and not infrequently at that time, this is about, I don't know, maybe 2004 or five. Um, when I was doing dirty jobs, so about 2003, um, I would be on a bus with these, these teenage, uh, goth girls, I guess for the dress. And they'd be all caffeined up and they'd just be <laughs> talking a million miles an hour and they were so uh, cynical and so and they were hilarious, but they were so. I mean, they 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 just and I I I, I and I loved the the vernacular and the way they talked and the, the sort of over dramatic you know wrist to forehead uh, tragedy of being you know a young whiter Asian kid in a city, and um, and I found all these goth blogs and this was the the era of uh, MySpace. So it was blogs were king and, 
And I found these goth blogs online where I could find where all these very clever kids were writing and I could pick up their vocabulary. So I built the whole vocabulary for um, Abby Normal, which is the character she narrates most of You Suck. And on there, in, the, in those goth blogs, I found someone who used Oh Fuck Sucks as a, as a sort of exasperation. Uh, right. you know, uh, uh, and, and so when I went to write, uh, I think it was the next book or a couple books later, when I went to write um, a, a Fool, which is where Pocket First appears, you know, people, my readers were saying, you need, you know, they would, were using that, that word in, um, in email and on social media to me. And I was like, well, I can't use it because this is, this is set in medieval England. And so I have to use something that's appropriate at the time. And so, oh yeah, well they would say fuck stockings. <laughs> um, and so that was, that's how Pocket ends up using fuck stockings when he's, and usually this in the same context when he's very frustrated you know, it's not a verb for anything. It's just what you shout, you know. Like, oh. That's exactly how I, how I use it. Yeah. <laughs> where to, Speaking of, of Fool and, and the Chronicles of Pocket, where did you get the idea to, to take Shakespeare's plays and, and put that unique twist on it? Um, I, I think, it, you know, to be quite honest, it wasn't actually, that wasn't actually my idea starting out. I was... Um, it was about 2005 as the Bush administration. We were in the, you know, we were hip deep in the Iraq war and it, it felt like the only people that were telling me the truth were comics. You know, it was like John Stewart and, and other uh, comedians were the only ones that were not lying to us. Right. And I thought, well, you know, that's the role of a fool is to, is to be the person that t- tells truth to power. So I was meeting with my editor for, uh, breakfast one morning in New York. And I, I said, look up my next book. Um, I want to write a book, book about a fool, but I don't know whether to just do a sort of generic fool or whether to do Shakespeare's fool from Lear. And she said, Oh, you have to do Shakespeare's fool from Lear. And I went, okay. And so I, you know, then she went off to work and I had to go learn 36 plays. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and a hundred sonnets. And, and that's kind of what I did. And so I, you know, the most famous, Fool, at least arguably in in Shakespeare, is is uh, the fool in King Lear who dies in the first act. Right. So you know he didn't he doesn't have a lot of he has some great speaking lines, but he doesn't really drive the story. And so it was my goal to take the least powerful um, character in court and even make him physically unintimidating, make him tiny like a jockey, um, and make him sort of be the one who's moving all the pieces on the chessboard. And so, but, and, and so I do that in the context of King Lear and then in Serpent of Venice, I do it in the context of uh, Othello and Merchant of Venice where I decide I need to solve racism and anti-Semitism. So <laughs> I'll just do it in this comedy based on Shakespeare. And, um, and then finally in Shakespeare for Squirrels, it's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is just something I could write during the Trump administration because, oh my God, and I, <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, it was just like, fairies and goblins and you know shit like that and I there was nothing real or or immediate that I needed to deal with so I could just have pocket riff on squirrels and fairies and so forth I'm about halfway through uh, Shakespeare for squirrels and I I absolutely love it um generally when I introduce people who aren't aware of your books I always go for fool um you know, the, the pocket trilogy and basically say mm-hmm. it's, it's Shakespeare plays told through the eyes of the fool. 
and that usually gets them in. I also recommend the other two books um, that I read were Dirty Jobs and Secondhand Souls, which, again, phenomenal. The weird thing with squirrels, again, <laughs> come up. Um, <laughs> but I, I definitely plan on jumping back and, and going to the uh, uh, Pine Cove stories and, and the, uh, the You Suck series. Yeah, I mean, there's no I, – I, I can't – now that I've got, you know – 18 of them in print and working on the 19th. I, I don't expect anybody to have read them all. <laughs> I you plan know? on it. <laughs> um, and, you know, there won't be a test, but, but um, you know, we you always try to talk about someone's favorite and maybe give some details on the background of that. The, the, my gateway book for most people is Lamb, which yeah. is the, the gospel according to Biff Christ Childhood Powell. And um, that's what I end up talking about most of the time. So it's, it's sort of a, a relief to kind of talk about some of the other ones. If if the Chronicles of Pocket were of were to be made into a, a movie series, who would you prefer or like to see play Pocket and uh, Drool? Um, Drool is really tough because he's so. One of the things that's really hard. My wife and I have been trying to cast Pocket since he was invented in two thousand seven, two thousand six, um, and you always want somebody who's little, but handsome and uh, agile, you know, so those, that's, those are the physical attributes. But, but seriously, when if you look at how they did um, Hagrid for, for Harry Potter, I mean, he's not 11 feet tall in real right. life. It's not that big a deal or the hobbits in the Hobbit movies. So, so I usually, you know, I just, I think it should be somebody uh, who obviously is English and, and talented and, uh, the guy that, that and I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the actor's name, that played on Prodigal Son with Michael Sheen um, on Fox would be a greatest pocket. Um, I thought the, uh, if Russell Brand wasn't so annoyingly tall and now annoyingly, annoyingly old, he'd be perfect for pocket. <laughs> but, you know, he's like 6'4". Yeah. You know, and pocket's like, you know, under five feet tall. Um, drool is just, I don't know. You just get... You know, you could do. Uh, gosh, I'm just blanking on names today, Michael. Uh, I was Nick. Uh, I was trying to think of that, names. Yeah, the guy that does all the movies with. Oh man, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> I was but, thinking um, the Rock, but Drool is not as important. You know, because he's he really is a, a large a large part of his character is his size, right? Um, and uh, and you know. And so somebody's just got to be believably big and kind of a doofus. And um, I, you know, and I, I, the names don't come don't come to mind. But you know, any talented actor of size could probably do it. I, the two names that came to mind for for Jewel were Vinnie Jones and The Rock, just because of their sheer physical sizes. I thought Vinnie Jones would be yeah. perfect because you know he's British, and he I think he can pull off the the, the dumb guy because he, he does that silent type a lot. But I think he can pull mm-hmm. off the. He's got the accent and, and the size for it. Mm-hmm. But I also thought Peter Dinklage might make a good fool. We'd be lucky to get him. <laughs> um, I mean, that's what you always say when someone is not perfect. You know, I remember when I first came into this business. You know, people would go, you know, what, what about Keanu for this character? And I'd go, uh, he's horrible and we'd be lucky to get him um and because you know 
And and Dinklage is so talented. There's no doubt that he could do it. I I don't know if 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 he would want to. And and it's and the the character would have to be written differently because Peter D- Dinklage is um, I think his condition. I, I don't know this the medical term for it, but I think his condition is dwarfism, and it generally is not what Pocket. Uh, projects, which right. is somebody who's very agile and, and very, you know, um, physically, um, very, 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 he's an acrobat, right. you know, and he juggles and, and all these things that are, you know, very physically demanding. And, and there's a lot of scenes in the, in the books where he's doing things that are physically difficult to do. Um, and, and I don't know that that would be something that, that Dinklage would do, but certainly the dramatic part, he would, he would crush the, yeah. that and the comedy he would crush that you know so if it was if we were going on acting talent he'd be great yeah um it's a fun game to play and you know <laughs> some of these things i mean my first book sold as a movie before it sold as a film and it's never been made so i've been casting these things to where now the people who i originally wanted to play couldn't they were too old to Kinda be their grandfather down. yeah um i remember when i when i wrote my first uh vampire book i thought kira sedgwick would be perfect for Jody, who's my you know, redheaded vampire is 25 at the time. And now she could play Jody's mom. <laughs> uh, and so, so it's, it's, it's tough. I, I, I think drool would be, uh, what's the guy's name? Is it Nick Croft? The guy that is with Simon, uh, they, they do all those movies like hot fuzz and, Oh, um, I know exactly what you're talking about and I'm not sure of his name. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm just ashamed because I'm I'm such a fan, but I'm just having one of those blank moments. Um, anyway, he would be he would be great as Drool, and you just have to size him up by special effects. You mentioned a few times that you're, you're writing a new book. Is is that Razmataz? Razmataz is finished. Oh, okay. I just got the uh, what's what's called the first pass pages, what we used to call the galleys, which are the printed pages before they're bound that you, it's your last chance to catch typos on. Got it. Um, and I just got those today. So I have a couple weeks to do those, but, um, that'll come out in May, 2022. And then the one that I'm starting to research, I don't have a title for yet. I just know it's set in Vienna in the early 20th century. Do titles typically come like last, like after it's pretty much done in order sporadically, I guess. I usually have I usually have a working title, and then you know sometimes it'll be um, changed as I go along. The book that's going to be Rasmates, which was originally called The Rain Dragon, and um, that sounded a little bit not Christopher Moore. <laughs> you know, I, I, it, you know, it, it just needed to be a little bit more. And and Rasmates uh, in noir, which which Rasmates is the uh, is the uh, sequel to Rasmataz is the character's word for sex. So it's like, oh yeah, you're giving me the Rasmataz on the beach like some kind of hobo, <laughs> and um, and, uh, and that and so anybody who's read Noir will see that you know that's what the book is about, and it's the same female character uses that term a lot on the cover. So God, I, I saw the cover for Rasmataz, and I was going to ask, is that the the sequel to Noir? I have a copy, I believe a signed copy I ordered. Um, when that of came noir? out of noir when it first came out i haven't had a chance to read it it got stuck away somewhere and then i just found it when my wife and i were rearranging our bedroom so i, I need to dive into that how has things changed uh for publishing since you've been in the industry 
Well, you know, there's different, just the, the, the sheer, the technology of it has changed completely. Everything, when I came in, my first book was sold in 1990, and um, everything was analog. I mean, we were shipping manuscripts, whole manuscripts back and forth. I'd do an edit, you know, my editor would do an edit, I would, I would do an edit, I, and we'd just be sending these, you know, great big packages back and forth. And then that, over the years, I mean, we were still doing hard copy for copy edits and stuff probably up until about 2010. Now it's all digital. It's all done in MS Word. You know, and people outside of publishing will always say, well, why do you use MS Word? Why would you write it? It's because it's what they use. And it, now you get your, your edit back from your editor and it says, this must be used, you know, this must be opened in the latest version of MS Word. Don't open it up in pages. Don't open it up in WordPerfect. Open it up in MS Word. So, you know, it's just kind of what you have to do. Um, I, this, um, the first pass pages I got today are in PDF and you have to do the whole edit digitally, which is just such a pain in the ass and I'm not going <laughs> to do it. I mean, I, you know, I'll do it on my iPad and I'll, I'll circle it and send it back to them digitally, but I am not going to go in with the, you know, all the commands and stuff to try and, and figure out how to <laughs> correct spelling. But whatever you do, don't edit it because then it won't be the same the same document. They're tr they're trying so hard to keep everything digital that they're making it um, almost impossible to do what I'm supposed to do. So it. it's changed in that respect. It's changed in that when I came into the business, um, probably independent booksellers probably sold most of the books in the United States, and then you know Barnes and Nobles and and uh, Barnes and Noble and and Borders sold the rest, and then Amazon happened, and that has changed completely over the years. To right. where you know that that that's flipped. Borders is gone. Barnes and Nobles is on live support. Um, independent bookstores have, have you know like the you know little train that could. They've the, they've adapted. They've you know they they've climbed. They've changed. They've become cafes. They do subscription services. Um, they become co-ops and they, and independent bookstores are, are alive and well, and that's great. But, but the, the, the marketing of books, it used to be a big deal where, um, where you were merchandised. In other words, they would, the, the publisher would buy space for your book, right? you know, but the, and, and, you know, so you would could be in the front of every Barnes and Noble store in the country and, and, you know, independent bookstores. And then the only places that weren't, um, bought were bestseller lists. So if you made the bestseller list, you were suddenly on the front rack in every airport, every bookstore, independent or not in the country. Merchandising almost doesn't exist anymore. You know, you don't go in, see a book and buy a book. You go online looking for a book. So, so all of what used to be merchandising in person the looking at an object and seeing what it, and cover design and all that has changed to, you know, how well can you market it online? It's, and, and so that's essentially the one answer, the one answer to how it's changed for me is, um, technology. And that's the real physical part of it. The, uh, the editorial part of it has changed a lot more for, uh, kids books and young adult authors because they are just, under the foot of this politically correct uh, uh, 
set of standards that they absolutely cannot, um, you know, they get questioned in every decision they make. Uh, I had a buddy who writes kids' books, and he said that he had a he had a book about a little girl, and she lives, I think, in New Orleans, and and she, you know, is just being a little girl and doing little girl things, and and she has a pinata at at her uh, birthday party, and she loves pinatas, and the publisher put a note, you can't have a pinata, and and uh, he's like, why? And they go, well, because she's a African American girl, and it's a Cultural appropriation. It's, uh, a, a Spanish and its cultural appropriation. And that's something that just, that didn't happen um, 30 years ago. I mean, and I, granted, I never wrote kids' books and my stuff was always that, but, but that sort of standard of people just, you know, being so worried about the wrong thing um, is, it, that's tough. And it's, it will come my way. I know we the same friend I had a, a, a conversation with. I said, it's just a matter of time till we're canceled. Yeah. You know, that's just, just, you know, it's get your affairs in order. Cause you will wake up one morning and be canceled. Um, yeah. The, the whole overly PCing of things is, is just obnoxious. The, the being angry for the sake of being angry, being offended for the sake of being offended and, being offended because I think you should be offended even if you're not offended at something that was directed towards you. It's, it's, it's getting a little nauseating <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I, the thing I deal with more is people I'm offended for these people who didn't see this. Right. You know, I'm a, you, you made fun of the Amish and I'm like, yeah, you know, who else can you make fun of online? They're not going to see <laughs> they're it. Not gonna... <laughs> uh, and, and they're like, yeah, but I'm offended for you. Um, I'm not, I, as my, as my friend said uh, over lunch, the same person, he said, if you have the conversation you've lost. So I, as, as a privileged, um, older white male, I think it's great. It's all great. I just, uh, I'm, I'm getting my affairs in order for when I get canceled and when it happens, it'll just be, well, I am sorry. I'll try to do better in my retirement. Um, <laughs> But and it, it but so far editorially it doesn't it hasn't affected me much. Um, I get away with a lot because I'm a satirist, and I get away with a lot because I'm not mean spirited about stuff, and I get away with a lot because I'm under the radar. Not that many people see what I do, you know. I mean, so so. Um, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That somebody won't, you know decide to throw down on me because of something that I wrote. Right. I, I follow you on Twitter and, and during the last presidential administration, uh, some, <laughs> some of your tweets were just <laughs> fucking brilliant. <coughs> um, I, I can't recall any of Thanks. them off the top of my head, That's but all right. it definitely made it uh, comical for, for scrolling through. Um, I'm pushing towards the end. So before I jump into my, my standard few questions, where can people find you to follow you and aside from looking for your books and such? Um, I'm at chrismore.com. Um, and, uh, my Twitter feed is at the author guy. Don't forget the, the in front of the author guy. Cause there's a guy who's author guy who has tons of followers who were disappointed because <laughs> he's not as funny as I am. Um, so it's at the author guy, and I think it's the same. I think it's the author guy on Facebook too. But um, I'm not very uh, active on Facebook because, except for like announcements for books and events and stuff, because it got 
really, it was tough to be on there. People were just mad all the time. So, yeah, that's um, that's most social media <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, any podcast can devolve into you know how awful social media is. But you know, the good thing about it is that people who want to come to an event, if events ever happen again, um, they can find me. And there was a point where they couldn't. So, so that part's good, and it gives me something to do to avoid writing. Got it. So real quick, a few questions. Um, sure. You can answer them, not answer them. It's your choice. First question, would you rather join a cult or a biker gang? Mm, biker gang. Yeah, I think that would be a little more fun. Cults usually end bad. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little more egalitarian too. I, I did, uh, I started to do uh, uh I guess it would have been a paper. I never finished it on bikers when I was in college. I wanted to be an anthropologist initially. And so that was, I was going to try and do an, an ethnography of bikers. And so it wouldn't be that far out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> Got it. I love riding. And that, that's why main reason why I jumped on the, the biker gang thing. Uh, question two, would you rather steal a cop car or a fire truck? Hmm. Gosh, I'm, I would rather steal a fire truck, but it, it, can I can I say I don't know how to drive a fire truck? So I'm not going to get far. But you know, <laughs> if it's if the practical is all aside, I definitely want to sit up in the top of a fire truck. Speaking from experience, they're they're not much harder. Um, I haven't driven a fire truck per se, but I have driven a rescue truck, which is basically a fire truck. Uh, right. I've also driven a police car as a profession, so. Uh, the question I can't really answer because I've done them both. <laughs> Not stealing, though. I have permission to use them. Uh, let's see. Last question. Uh, would you spend or rather spend a week in the Paleolithic era or a week in an unspecified future? Well, unspecified is sort of a, you know, is, is it a <laughs> lava pit? You know? We'll just call in it a timeline as opposed to a particular uh, place. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would need more details. If it was just open, you know, like, I, let's say I don't want to be in a paleolithic lava pit and I don't want to be in a futuristic lava pit. Um, if it's just like a, I'm just going to be in the same place I am now, probably future, you know, but I, yeah, that's, that's one of those questions that it's, it's just not a either or you got to have like, okay, do, is there an ability for me to actually survive a week there? You know, it's not like one of those really awkward time traveler things where they, they get in the machine and they're on a mountain and the time they go to, there's no mountain there. And so they, they appear 20,000 feet in the air and fall to their death immediately. <laughs> Yeah, that's a little loose-ended, uh, open-ended there for you, but uh, I think I would. Okay. Well, I think I'd ahead. probably take the future end of it just to kind of see where things are. See what happened, yeah. Well, I uh, I definitely appreciate very much your your time. I know you're busy writing and stuff, so um, I want to thank you again for your time, and I will happily have you back on if you ever want to come back on if you finished the book you're writing. Well, thanks. Thanks for waiting because you had to wait for me to finish Rasmus <laughs> before I would do this one. So, so we slotted it in. Um, uh, thanks, I, Michael. I appreciate my, it. My persistence was there. So, <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Stay healthy. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. 
follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.